On account of his knowledge, Demshid became the leader of his people. They soon became a nation emulated by home, added many things of his own thereto, and gave much attention to the stars. His followers regarded fire as sacred. They were all distinguished by a certain sign which denoted their race. People at that time kept together in tribes. They did not intermingle then as now. Zamshid's special aim was to improve the races and maintain them in their original purity. He separated and transplanted them as seemed best to him. He left them perfectly free, and yet they were very submissive to him. The descendants of those races, whom I now see wild and barbarous in distant lands and islands, are not to be compared with their progenitors in point of personal beauty or manly character. For those early nations were noble and simple, yet withal most valiant. The races of the present day are also far less skillful and clever, and possess less bodily strength. On his marches, Zemsid laid the foundations of ten cities, marked off fields, made long roads of stone, and formed settlements here and there of certain numbers of men and women to whom he gave animals, trees, and plants. He rode around large tracts of land, striking into the earth with an instrument which he always carried in his hand, and his people then set to work in those places, grubbing and hacking, making hedges and digging ditches. Zemshid was remarkably strict and just. I saw him as a tall old man, very thin and of a yellowish-red complexion. He rode a surprisingly nimble little animal with slender legs and black and yellow stripes, very much like an ass. Zemshid rode around a tract of land just as our poor people go around a field on the heath by night, and thus appropriated it for cultivation. He paused here and there, plunged his grubbing axe into the ground, or drove in a stake to mark the sites of future settlements. The instrument, which was afterward called Zemshid's golden plowshare, was in form like a Latin cross. It was about the length of one's arm, and when drawn out, formed with the shaft a right angle. With this instrument, Demshid made fissures in the earth. The representation of the same appeared on the side of his robe where pockets generally are. It reminded me of the symbol of office that Joseph and Aseneth always carried in Egypt, with which they also surveyed the land, though that of Zemshid was more like a cross. On the upper part was a ring into which it could be run. Zemshid wore a mantle that fell backward from the front. From his girdle to the knee hung four leathern flaps, two behind and two before, strapped at the side and fastened under the knee. His feet were bound with leather and straps. He wore a golden shield on his breast. He had several similar breastplates to suit various solemnities. His crown was a pointed circlet of gold. The point in front was higher and bent, like a little horn, and on the end of it waved something like a little flag. Zemshid constantly spoke of Hanak. He knew that he had been taken away from the earth without undergoing death. He taught that Hanak had delivered over to Noah all goodness and all truth, had appointed him the father and guardian of all blessings, and that from Noah all these blessings had passed over to himself. 
he wore about him a golden egg-shaped vessel, in which, as he said, was contained something precious that had been preserved by Noah in the ark, and which had been handed down to himself. Wherever he pitched his tent, there the golden vessel was placed on a column, and over it, on elegant posts carved with all kinds of figures, a covering was stretched. It looked like a little temple. The cover of the vessel was a crown of filigree work. When Zemshid lighted fire, he threw into it something that he took out of the vessel. The vessel had indeed been used in the ark, for Noah had preserved the fire in it. But it was now the treasured idol of Zemshid and his people. When it was set up, fire burned before it, to which prayers were offered and animals sacrificed. For Zemshid taught that the great God dwells in light and fire, and that it has many inferior gods and spirits serving him. All submitted to Zemshid. He established colonies of men and women here and there, gave them herds, and permitted them to plant and build. They were now allowed to follow their own pleasure in the matter of marriage, for Zemshid treated them like cattle, assigning wives to his followers in accordance with his own views. He himself had several. One was very beautiful and of a better family than the others. Zemshid destined his son by her to be his successor. By his orders, great round towers were built, which were ascended by steps for the purpose of observing the stars. The women lived apart and in subjection. They wore short garments, the bodice and breast of material like leather, and some kind of stuff hung behind. Around the neck and over the shoulders they wore a full circular cloak, which fell below the knee. On the shoulders and breast it was ornamented with signs or letters. From every country that he settled, Zemshid caught, caused straight roads to be made in the direction of Babel. Zemshid always led his people to uninhabited regions, where there were no nations to expel. He marched everywhere with perfect freedom, for he was only a founder, a settler. His race was of a bright reddish-yellow complexion like ochre, very handsome people. All were marked in order to distinguish the pure from these of mixed descent. Zemshid marched over a high mountain covered with ice. I do not remember how he succeeded in crossing, but many of his followers perished. They had horses or asses. Zemshid rode on a little striped animal. Change of climate had driven them from their country. It became too cold for them, but it was warmer there now. Occasionally he met on his march a helpless tribe either escaping from the tyranny of their chief or awaiting in distress the advent of some leader. They willingly submitted to Zemshid, for he was gentle, and he brought them grain and blessings. They were destitute exiles who, like Job, had been plundered and banished. I saw some poor people who had no fire and who were obliged to take their bread on hot stones in the sun. When Zemshid gave them fire, they looked upon him as a god. He fell in with another tribe that sacrificed children who were deformed or who did not reach their standard of beauty. The little ones were buried up to the waist and a fire kindled around them. Zemshid abolished this custom. He delivered many poor children whom he placed in a tent and confided to the care of some women. He afterward made use of them here and there as servants. He was very careful to keep the genealogical line pure. Zemshid first marched in a southwesterly direction, 
keeping the prophet mountain to the south on his left. Then he turned to the south, the mountain still on his left, but to the east. I think he afterward crossed the Caucasus. At that period, when those regions were swarming with human beings, when all was life and activity, our countries were but forests, wildernesses, and marshes. Only off toward the east might be met a small wandering tribe. The shining star, Zoroaster, who lived long after, was descended from Zemshid's son, whose teachings he revived. Zemshid wrote all kinds of laws on bark and tables of stone. One long letter often stood for a whole sentence. Their language was as yet the primitive one, to which ours still bears some resemblance. Zemshid lived just prior to Tekrato and her daughter, the mother of Semiramis. He did not go to Babel himself, though his career ran in that direction. I saw the history of home and Zemshid as Jesus spoke of it before the pagan philosophers at Lanifa in the Isle of Cyprus. These philosophers had in Jesus' presence spoke of Zemshid as the most ancient of the wise kings who had come from far beyond India. With a golden dagger received from God, he had divided off and peopled many lands and had scattered blessings everywhere. They questioned Jesus about him and the various wonders related to him. Jesus responded to their questions by saying that Zemshid was by nature a prudent man, a man wise according to flesh and blood, that he had been a leader of the nations, that upon the dispersion of men at the building of the Tower of Babel, he had led one race and settled countries according to a certain order, that there had been other leaders of that kind who had, indeed, led a worse life than he, because his race had not fallen into so great ignorance as many others. But Jesus showed them also what fables had been written about him, and that he was a false side picture, a counterfeit type of the priest and king Melchizedek. He told them to notice the difference between Zemshid's race and that of Abraham. As the stream of nations moved along, God had sent Melchizedek to the best families to lead and unite them, to prepare for them lands and abiding places, in order that they might preserve themselves unsullied and, in proportion to their degree of worthiness, be found more or less fit to receive the grace of the promise. Who Melchizedek was, Jesus left to themselves to determine. But of one thing they might be certain, he was an ancient type of the future, but then fast approaching fulfillment of the promise. The sacrifice of bread and wine, which he had offered, would be fulfilled and perfected, and would continue till the end of time. 7. The Tower of Babel The building of the Tower of Babel was the work of pride. The builders aimed at constructing something according to their own ideas, and thus resist the guidance of God. When the children of Noah had become very numerous, the proudest and most experienced among them met to resolve upon the execution of some work so great and so strong as to be the wonder of all ages to come and cause the builders to be spoken of as the most skillful, the most powerful of men. They thought not of God. They sought only their own glory. Had it been otherwise, as I was distinctly told, God would have allowed their undertaking to succeed. The children of Sem took no active part in the work. 
They dwelt in a level country where palm trees and similar choice fruit grow. They were, however, obliged to contribute something toward the building, for they did not dwell so far distant at that period as they did later. The descendants of Cham and Japhet alone were engaged in the work, and because the Semites refused to join them, they called them a stupid race. Semites were less numerous than the children of Cham and Japhet, and among them the family of Heber and the ancestors of Abraham studiously refrained from encouraging the enterprise. Upon Haber, who, as we have said, took no part in the work, God cast his eyes, and amid the general disorder and corruption, he set him and his posterity apart as a holy nation. God gave him also a new and holy language possessed by no other nation, that thereby his race would be cut off from communication with all others. This language was the pure Hebrew, or Chaldaic, the first tongue, the mother tongue, spoken by Adam, Sam, and Noah, was different, and it is now extant only in isolated dialects. Its first pure offshoots are the Zend, the sacred tongue of India, and the language of the Bactrians. In those languages, words may be found exactly similar to the Low German of my native place. The book that I see in modern Stesiphon on the Tigris is written in that language. Haber was still living at the time of Semiramis. His grandfather, Afaxad, was the favorite son of Sem. He was a man of great judgment and full of profound wisdom, but a good deal of idolatrous worship and sorcery may have been handed down by him. The Magi derived their origin from him. The Tower of Babel was built upon rising ground, about two leagues in circumference, around which lay an extensive plain covered with fields, gardens, and trees. To the foundations of the tower, that is up to its first story, twenty-five very broad stone walks led from all sides of the plain. Twenty-five tribes were engaged in the building, and each tribe had its own road to the tower. Off in the distance, where these roads began, each tribe had its own particular city that, in time of danger or attack, they might flee to the tower for shelter. The tower was intended likewise to serve as a temple for their idolatrous worship. Stones, stone roads were, where they took their rise in the plain, terribly fall apart, but around the tower they lay so close that their intervening spaces were not greater than the breadth of a wide street. Before reaching the tower, they were connected by cross arches. Between every two, there opened a gateway, about ten feet wide, into its base. When these gently inclined roads had reached a certain height, they were pierced by single arcades. Near the tower, the arcades were double, one above the other, so that through them one could make the circuit of the buildings even around the lowest part, under all the roads. Above the arches that connected the inclined roads were walks or streets running horizontally around the tower. Those gently rising roads extended like the roots of a tree. They were designed in part as supporting counterpillars to strengthen the foundation of the immense building, and partly as roads for the conveyance from all points of building materials and other roads to the first story of the tower.
Between these extended bases were encampments upon substructures of stone. In many places the tops of the tents rose above the roads that ran through them. From every encampment, steps cut in the walls led up to the walks. One could go all around the tower, though the encampments and arches and under the stone roads. Besides the occupants of the encampments, there were others who lived in the vaults and spaces on either side of the stone roads. In and around the whole building swarmed innumerable living beings. It was like a huge anthill. Countless elephants, asses, and camels toiled up and down the roads with their heavy burdens. Although these burdens were far broader than the animals themselves, yet several could with ease pass one another on the roads. On them were halting places for feeding and unloading the animals, also tents on the level spaces, and even factories. I saw animals without a guide bearing their burdens up and down. Gateways in the basement of the tower led into a labyrinth of halls, passages, and chambers. From this lower part of the tower, one could mount by steps cut out on all sides. A spiral walk wound from the first story around the exterior of the polygonal building. The interior at this point consisted of cellars, immense and secure, covered chambers and passages. The building was begun on all sides at once, all tended to one central point where at first stood a large encampment. They used tiles, also immense hewed stones, which they hauled to the site. The surface of the walks was quite white, and it glistened in the sun. At a distance, the site it presented was wonderful. The tower was planned most skillfully. I was told that it would have been finished and would now be standing as a magnificent monument of human skill had it been erected to the honor of God. But the builders thought not of God. Their work was the offspring of presumption. The names of those that had contributed to the grandeur and magnificence of the building were inscribed with words of praise in the vaults and on the pillars, in the former by means of different colored stones, and on the latter in large characters. There were no kings, but only the heads of the different families. They ruled according to common counsel. The stones employed in the building were skillfully wrought. They fitted into one another, held one another together. There were no raised figures on the building, but many parts of it were inlaid with colored stones, and here and there were figures hewn in niches. Canals and cisterns were constructed for water supplies. All lent a helping hand. Even the women trod the clay with their feet. The men worked with breast and arms bare, the most distinguished wearing a little cap with a button. Even in very early times, women kept the head covered. The building so increased in bulk and height that on account of the shade it cast, it was quite cold on one side, while on the other, the reflection of the sun's rays made it very hot. For thirty years, the work went on. They were at the second story. They had already encircled and walled in the interior with tower-like columns, had already recorded their names and races thereon in colored stones when the confusion broke forth. I saw one sent by God, Melchizedek, going around among the leaders and the masters of the building. He called upon them to account for their conduct, and he announced to them the chastisement of God. And now began the confusion. Many who had up to this time worked on peaceably now boasted their skill and the great services they had rendered in the undertaking. 
They form parties, they laid claim to certain privileges, this occasioned contradictions, animosities, and rebellion. There were at first only two tribes among the disaffected, and these, it was resolved, should be put down. But soon it was discovered that disunion existed among all. They struggled among themselves, they slew one another, they could no longer make themselves understood by one another. So at last they separated and scattered over the whole earth. I saw Sam's race going farther southward, where later on was Abraham's home. I saw one of Sam's race. He was a good man, but he did not follow his leader. On account of his wife, he preferred staying among the wicked ones of Babel. He became the leader of the Sabinenses, a race that always held themselves aloof from others. Under the cruel Samaramis, Melchizedek transplanted them to Palestine. When in my childhood I had the vision of the building of the tower, I used to reject it because I could not understand it. I had, of course, seen nothing like it, no buildings but our farmhouses and the city of Kosfeld. More than once I thought it must be heaven. But I had the vision again and again, and always in the same way I see it still. And I have also seen how it looked in Job's time. One of the chief leaders in the tower building was Nimrod. He was afterward honored as a deity under the name of Belus. He was the founder of the race that honored Decerto and Semiramis as goddesses. He built Babylon out of the stones of the tower, and Semiramis greatly embellished it. He also laid the foundation of Nineveh and built substructures of stones for tent dwellings. He was a great hunter and tyrant. That period, savage animals were very numerous, and they committed fearful ravages. Hunting expeditions fitted out against them were as grand as military expeditions. They who slew these wild animals were honored as gods. Nimrod also. That is, where the door serves as an egress for the smoke, as well as for the cows, drove men together and subdued them. He practiced idolatry, he was full of cruelty and witchcraft, and he had many descendants. He lived to be about 270 years old. He was of sallow complexion, and from early youth he had led a wild life. He was an instrument of Satan and very much given to star worship. Of the numerous figures and pictures that he traced in the planets and constellations, and according to which he prophesied concerning the different nations and countries, he sought to reproduce representations which he set up as gods. The Egyptians owe their sphinx to him, as also their many-armed and many-headed idols. For seventy years, Nemer busied himself with the histories of these idols, with ceremonial details relative to their worship and the sacrifices to be offered them, also with the forming of the pagan priesthood. By his diabolical wisdom and power, he had subjected the races that he led to the building of the tower. When the confusion of tongues arose, many of those tribes broke away from him, and the wildest of them followed Mizraim into Egypt. Nimrod built Babylon, subjected the country around, and laid the foundation of the Babylonian Empire. Among his numerous children were Ninus and Derketo. The last mention was honored as a goddess.